Tommy, anxieties, I, I think, can be a very difficult thing to talk about, and, and they can put you in, in a sort of a dour mood. And so I thought today might be a great opportunity to, to kick it off with something that might uh, actually Im- improve uh, improve your life a little bit. What do you think? Oh, take a little bit of the dour off. I like it. Yeah, it's a dour off. That's it's what a dour it is. off. It turns out that if you live with even a little bit of anxiety, you may have a better memory than the normos. Oh. According to uh, researchers, as uh, reported in Live Science, researchers say that higher anxiety may make people more susceptible to negative feelings, putting them in a more negative state of mind, which actually makes certain events seem more memorable. In other words, a little bit of anxiety can give your memory a boost. Consider this scenario, they posit. <laughs> if a person's having a bad day and then goes to Starbucks and the barista asks the neutral person, would you like milk in your coffee? This, believe it or not, may be interpreted as something negative if somebody is in a bad frame or highly anxious state of mind. Later, that individual may remember this trip for coffee as a negative experience because of this connotation and this connection to the negative milk experience. This comes out of the University of Waterloo in Canada. That's the kind of stuff they're studying in Canada. Wait. <laughs> no, I, Wait a minute. No, I, I hear where you're going here. Okay. The idea is that for highly anxious people, memories of neutral events seem less neutral as a result of their state of mind at the time. And if they are in a heightened state of anxiety, their state of mind is not neutral. Therefore, every experience is filtered through this non-neutral state of mind. But aren't you also then synthesizing? Yeah, right, right. 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 <laughs> yeah, of like, did I want milk? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I ate milk. What they're really just saying is that it, those who exist in a even slightly negative mindset are emotionally tainted. Their words, not mine, but I love them. (laughs) (laughs) That's the other name for the podcast. (laughs) Emotionally tainted. For participants, they associated a series of neutral words one at a time that are overlaid onto a photo of a negative scene. So uh, something that could affect their emotions like a car accident or a cemetery uh, or a neutral scene like a lake or trees or something pleasant. And neutral words would be included like table or desk, things that don't elicit an emotion. Participants then later are asked to think back to the words they were shown uh, that that caused them to enter that negative uh, uh, state or the neutral state. And uh, this uh, Waterloo professor Mira Fernandez says that uh, participants were presented with this other set of neutral words and their memory of these words was then tested. People with the higher levels of anxiety uh, and that anxious connection to those words actually remembered more words. Okay, you can just have a better memory, but because you're just more upset all the time. (laughs) Yes. So I'm saying you're on the right track. Hooray. (laughs) I don't know how this is supposed to make me feel. I guess win, lose. (laughs) I can remember better about things that I would rather forget. Great. All right. Welcome to What's That Smell, a sometimes funny podcast about humans and their anxieties. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Tommy Metz III. And every week, we each drag one of our deepest, darkest anxieties into the light to share it, learn about it, and hopefully laugh about it with all of you. Pete, this week, with your blessing, I will go first. You have it, my son. You and I have been friends for uh, a long time, safe to say? Yeah. And is it safe to say that I'm a pretty active conversationalist? Meaning that I'm talkative, but I also like talking to people quite a bit. Yes, it is. Okay. Why do I take that as a laugh line? 
Well, it actually took me a while to find the word conversationalist. Yeah, he's chatty. <laughs> Something that was kind of, to use your words from the cold open, neutral. Neutral, <laughs> yeah. I, I yammer like a machine. Yeah, you're annoying. What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I was trying to. But fair enough. So being an African conversationalist, and over my life, I have learned that that is most likely for two reasons. Number one, and this is true, I'm honestly invested and interested in other people. I really crave connection and interaction. I really like hearing what other people have to say and their personal views on stuff. That checks out. I buy that about you. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Number two, I have learned as I've gotten older that there is another sneakier part of that that involves anxiety. And that is I am really afraid of silence during a conversation. Those times when the conversation grinds to a halt and you're just sitting there in silence, I get really uncomfortable and in the back of my mind, even while I'm honestly listening and really taking in and asking follow-up questions, I always want to be ready to pivot or to keep things moving. So my anxiety that I'd like to briefly talk about this week is the fear of conversational silence. Uh, the closest I was able to come to is sedate phobia. The word originates from the Greek sedate, meaning silent or sleeping or dead. Ooh, thanks, Greece. <laughs> and phobos, meaning, you know the god of yikes <laughs> <laughs> that's how it's listed i think i think the it's the god of, of history yikes. the yeah. god of yikes <laughs> the god of <laughs> i've tried to spend a little bit of time sitting in that not in silence with a real person but in silence with myself and figuring out what is it that i'm really worried about and that silence makes me feel like i'm uninteresting i'm worrying that they're looking for a reason to get off the phone or to get out of the conversation, to move on with their day. I worry it's a commentary on my relationship with the other person. Even if it's a good friend, that it somehow means that we're no longer getting along as well as we can or have in the past. That they won't want to talk to me or hang out with me in the future because I'm boring. My mind goes that fast in probably which is just a few moments of silence. I don't want to give, well, I guess <laughs> me talking about myself. <laughs> The other problem about this is I'm talking about talking. And so now I'm so hyper aware about whether I'm letting you talk or whatever. I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> well, that's funny because I've been trying to interject for like five minutes. So, yeah, anyway, no time for that, Pete. So here's the is, point. <laughs> <laughs> this is that thing I actually do know about you. And it's all coming clear now that you have a problem with any inter interaction that includes, huh? That's interesting. And then silence. Unless I really believe that you do feel if you're the other person in the conversation, you do believe that's interesting. I'm going to mull that over for a second. Yeah. Instead, if I take that as a conversational filler, I mean, some of the things that I dread most in conversation and they really don't come up much is when someone goes, so like <laughs> you telling me that the conversation is failing and I take responsibility for at least part of that. So, or uh, my longtime friend from uh, grade school, uh, Scott Lamb, obviously this is something that I worry about because it's stuck in my mind. This probably happened in fifth grade. <laughs> uh, we went over to visit a friend conversation ground to a halt. And he went, so crazy, crazy, crazy. <laughs> and I was like, what are you doing? That that's not a crazy thing to say. It's fine. But for me, that just means conversation death. It's the equivalent of a sad trombone. It's the worst. <laughs> I 
Exactly right. Exactly right. It's the verbal equivalent of a child throwing himself a party and nobody comes. Like it's just one person in a party hat sitting alone in the long shot and it's just like burr, burr, burr. Oh my goodness. This is something that I honestly worry about. Do you have any feelings like this? You have to understand, I feel like I am generally in in public, like at parties, I am a genuinely terrible participant. Really? I wouldn't think that about you at all. Oh, I'm terrible. It is so much work. I am I am a deeply invested introvert. I didn't used to be, and I think introversion, extroversion tends to be fairly context specific, right? Like I used to be an extrovert when I worked in sales, but I've been uh, podcasting mm. for, you know, uh, years now, right? It's 12 years I've been podcasting professionally in some way shape mm-hmm. or form. And when I look at like the episode just just on an episode level, I produce like 1500 individual episodes over the years of my voice talking into the internet. And uh, I think that that is in large part a way for me to compensate for how bad I perceive myself in public. Huh? Because you're still communicating and you're still putting yourself out there, but it's largely a either a one to one or a one to zero kind of situation. Here's what I would what I would submit. I would submit that for me, it's because it is a way for me to reclaim control in a conversation. Mm. It's a way for me to have a conversation like this one with you in a controlled environment where I get to respond to just you, where I know your attention is on me and we are speaking with each other in a a sort of non-distracted environment. And so as a result, you don't risk the potential for losing my uh, attention or if we're if we were having the same part conversation at a party right and there is a lot of noise and hue and cry of other distractions around us and maybe we weren't close friends we're right even but even if right. we were or, but even, even if, worse sure. right that suddenly i risk losing your attention as if losing is a competition in a conversation, right. right? That it's a game that I have to compete. And that's what I'm hearing from you, right? That I have to keep talking because if I don't, it's the equivalent of me missing a hurdle. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great way to say it. And I do, I do though want to, to be nice, not to be nice, but to be true to myself. I do not believe that I do yammer on and on and on and on. I would like to think that I'm a very good listener. And a lot of the conversation has to do with me asking follow-up questions because I really do want to know. I guess what I'm getting at is that I have trouble with some people just getting honestly relaxed, (laughs) that I'm always very hyper aware of where the conversation's going and any potential pitfalls that might happen. Always remember this follow-up in case you need it. This makes me sound like a jerk. (laughs) I feel like you uh, have this image of somebody at a party who actually in the middle of a conversation might pull out like a blankie and a pillow (laughs) just be like, you know what? You are the worst thing at this this party and I'm going to take a nap because I can't find anything else to do. Yeah, it's either that or like some sort of mental clipboard that they just take out and in real time go, oh, okay, so that's all you've got to give and got it and that is now your identification forever and next and we're done and that's not how people work no (laughs) it's not how people work and i I happen to know from having attended parties with you that you are not that guy and uh you are uh, deeply interesting and interested in those uh, around you and the world around you and i have never heard anyone say yeesh that tommy snooze fest like that has (laughs) never been a thing (laughs) Well, actually, I've got some bad news for you. (laughs) 
no, no one. <laughs> it's weird. It's as if you heard the quote. No. Um, and thank you for saying that. And I do believe at risk of sounding like I'm complimenting myself because I'm actually not. I do believe that that is true. I think I do, though, spend way too much sweat equity than is needed. Yes. That I can just, if I could just sort of rationally relax and be like, I enjoy this and this is fine. And it's never happened really before. So why would it happen this time? I mean, that's a lot of what anxiety is. When it's your event, is it different? If the stage is set in such a way that you personally are in a position of some sort of power, for lack of a better word, or control again, like if it's in your place of, of residence or if it's in some place that's considered your turf is does that make it a different sort of experience for you honestly it could go back and forth but my first instinct says that that actually makes it worse oh i maybe that's ironic maybe not but the fact that it's my event or something where i am in quote-unquote control that ups my requirement like the stakes are higher the stakes are higher and it's even more my job that everyone has a good time interesting that no one finds me boring so i guess i i would see where it could be where i could have you know more confidence in that situation but it probably just makes the social requirement a little bit higher for me. Yeah, yeah. No, I can totally see that. I, For me, it's a little bit different. If I know that people are coming to my house, that they've made the intention of actually taking time out of their day and they see value in the exchange of that time in, in sort of my place or at my, you know, event mm. or at my group's event, uh, it, it makes it a little bit uh, of an easier thing because I sort of know they've they've already given me permission um, to, to be okay in my own skin. They've already given you some sort of validation. Yes, validation. That's right. And yes, I will come to you. Right. Well, no, not for me. <laughs> not for me. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> that does make sense. And I'm not sure I might outthink my way so I can go back to being slightly uncomfortable. Yeah. No, you do. You do your part. I do know the the rational factors that I was able to sort of think of is that silence is a normal part of conversation. Number one. Number two, mm -hmm. it can help the conversation. It helps you concentrate. People can appreciate the fact that you're really taking it in. I was thinking number three, that silence between two people can be a real sign of trust between two people. Right. That I trust you, that I, we don't have to be, quote, on all the time. Rationally, I get that. But irrationally, it still makes me super goosey. That's the medical term. It's goosey. I've heard that. That's in the DSM. Yeah. That is in yeah. The it's very new. It's in a draft. You won't find it yet. It's in a draft. Wait for it. By knowing it, by calling it out. Mm -hmm. Not to, and now to you and all of these listeners, it does drag it out of the darkness and it does make me keep in mind, why are you doing this to yourself? I guess if I had to say what now I'm talking about worrying about worrying, but if there's a real sort of factor that this anxiety has in my life, it's, it's that I know that there are times that I cut off a healthy conversation, not in the middle, like a creep, like I just have a jetpack, but like <laughs> just hang up. I cut off the conversation before I need to because I'm afraid that at some point it might grind down to silence. It's a healthy conversation, and then I cut it off, letting the other person get off the line if we're on the phone. Or, you know, just give them an out before I need to because I'm afraid it's almost like leave them wanting more. It's that kind of <laughs> uh, idea. I don't think I do it a ton, but I know that I have maybe shut down real conversations just because of that. And that's that's me going too far. That's the opposite of let's drag it out into the light and think about it. That's just me letting my anxiety get a hold of me. Well, that's when you forget that not every interpersonal conversation is sketch comedy. 
Oh, what do you mean? Well, I mean, sometimes, you know, you go into a conversation, particularly with somebody that you trust or that you want to you, you want this person to like you. Right. If you don't have an established kind of relationship, if it's somebody, you know, if you've heard about that, they're a good person, you want to make a good impression that you go in and all of your senses are heightened and you think I'm going to put on a show. This is going to they're going to see my best material. Right. That's the difference between a conversation and a performance. Right. Right. Yes. And that's probably where I'm accidentally blending those two things together. Right. Because that's a that is another exceptional skill of yours in the professional capacity. Well, <laughs> I wasn't fishing, but I like what I caught. I think you're right. I think that makes a lot of sense that I sh I need to remember that it's just friendship. It's not a performance and I'm not being judged. It's not like the last time that I talked to them is whether I get voted off the island. Because let's be clear, you would have been voted off a long time ago. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm also <laughs> afraid of islands. So, <laughs> Silence can literally grow your brain. I would have normally thought that most brain function or things that your brain grows from would come from outside stimuli, like learning. <laughs> uh, but in 2013, the journal, you, one of your favorites, Brain Structure and Function, they did a study comparing the effects of different noises on the brains of mice. Um, they tried ambient noise, white noise, pup calls. And I learned while doing research for this that baby mice are called pups. Did you know that? Oh, I thought they were calling dogs to put them in a state of heightened anxiety. <laughs> right. Yeah, hey, exactly. mice, here's a pit bull. Yeah, here's your natural enemy if there was one. <laughs> but no, ladies and gentlemen, baby mice are called pups. And that alone makes this podcast worth downloading. <laughs> okay, ambient noise, white noise, pup calls, and silence. And silence was originally only supposed to be the control in the study, uh, what you measure everything else against. Mm -hmm. But they found that actually two hours of silence daily led to the development of new cells in all of them, in the hippocampus, which is the brain region associated with learning, memory, and emotion. That does make sense to me because it's I'm sure it's just letting your brain, a, it's kind of like dreaming or sleeping. It's letting your brain settle down, recharge, and go through everything that it has. That has been dumped into it by everything surrounding us all the time mm -hmm. and needs silence to do that. So I thought that that made a lot of sense. Does it change the way you feel about experiencing silence in social situations? Not at all. OK, good. Yeah. Uh, but then this other thing did. Have you heard of Men's Health, the magazine? <laughs> Every damn day, Tommy. In 2015, they did a survey on what makes a man attractive. And 53 percent of respondents said that the ability to be <laughs> silent and listen was the most attractive <laughs> practical trait that they look for in a partner. And that makes me feel great because I know that the information in those types of magazines are always right on the money because <laughs> that's how I got these rock hard abs in only two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been sitting in silence in a really silent room and sort of heard a ringing sound? Yeah, uh, that, uh, tinnitus. Right. Right. Isn't that the result of all of the, you know, the shells that have gone off, uh, you know, during the war? Right. Exactly. That um, that actually silence is very loud, that our brain naturally creates noise to fill the silence. So once the machine that would or ordinarily be sending sound to the brain stops working, the, quote, synaptic balance in those neurons goes haywire because nothing is regulating it. Nothing is pulling it down into its normal level of activity. And so it just starts generating its own activity in that pathway. And then you can hear ringing or buzzing or humming, all of which fall under the term tinnitus tinnitus. Exactly. Yeah, tinnitus tinnitus. I've heard it both ways. Yeah. Even when there is silence, your brain is still screaming at you. <laughs> so that's horrifying. <laughs>
<laughs> That's fantastic, uh, fantastic information. And how, I mean, you say, and I'm sure a little bit in jest, that it changed the way you think about your silence anxiety. This is, uh, I, and I'm sort of likening this to a, a, a kind of social anxiety. I don't know if you would if you would agree there, but correct. Do you feel better having talked about it? It makes me absolutely feel better talking about it because one of the most important things to remember, and you do this by talking to people, is it's not just you. That's kind of one of the bases. Mm-hmm. Bases. They're called pups. It's one of the bases <laughs> of this podcast is that it's not just in your head. Bringing yes. it out into the light and talking about it makes you feel better because really, if two people are having a great conversation and they fall silent, at worst, the only thing, and this is the rational part, the only thing that's really happened is that both of them have let their insecurities, at worst, get the best of them, and they're both stewing in silence. So even if that worse, probably what has happened is just they're thinking about it, or they're thinking about something else to bring up, or anything. But even in that worst case, it brings us together. It's two people sharing a common situation, and just knowing that makes it better. I have... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, saw, I, saw, I saw what you did there. <laughs> Didn't care for it. <laughs> Tommy, I'd like to tell you a story. Oh, I love stories. It's a story of a family trip uh, when I was 10 years old. Okay. Uh, I went on a trip with my dad to Oklahoma. Now we were living in Colorado at the time, and uh, but but I was. You may not know this. I was born in Oklahoma, uh, and and I shudder. I, I I'm nervous to tell you where I was born in Oklahoma, but I'm going to try it because you know airing of grievances. I'll let you get it out. I was born in a little place called Jinx, Oklahoma. <laughs> I wish I had said it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's what's great is they didn't even spell it right. It's J E N X. Like, oh. you know, what are you going to do? Uh, but it's a, it's a little uh, <laughs> yeah. It's pretty much uh, it's 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 sort of par for the course. So we went there to see the old stomping grounds. Both my parents were were from there, and so uh, I had not spent much time in Oklahoma. I think we left when I was six or seven. So we went back when I was ten or eleven years old to kind of tool around the place. And now that I say this, ten or eleven years old, I think I was older than that. I was probably in high school, early high school, maybe fourteen, fifteen. My grandfather was an oil industrialist. And as a result, uh, you know, he had many connections in Tulsa and was given many gifts of infrastructure from other builders of this city uh, in his time. And these gifts of infrastructure were immovable, right? They are inseparable from Oklahoma. In this case, I'm talking about graves. Oh, he was given as part of his role in uh, Tulsa. He was given 10 grave plots and a couple of spots in a mausoleum at one of the biggest uh, cemeteries in Oklahoma. Oh, is very extravagant. Wait, why is he being given gifts? Well, it was a trade for some such or another. Oh, so it's like, I don't a, know. It was like a gift kind of... in kind. Yeah. You know, Got he okay. exchanged like oil mineral rights to this guy and the guy said, hey, you want 10 grave spots? You know, these will be God. valuable. <laughs> you scratch my back. I give you yeah. places to. <laughs> OK, got it. OK. <laughs> and and let's be clear. These aren't places to die. You go here after you're dead. So you can let that. Is that go. how graves but work? <laughs> that's how graves work. So, I should write that down. <laughs> so dad is telling me this story as we're strolling through 
the plot. And of course, my grandfather and grandmother, they're in the mausoleum there. And so, you know, we walk through There's lots of marble and flowers and sconces mm-hmm. and things. I think I learned what a sconce was at this particular mausoleum. And so then he stops me and he says, here we are. And I said, well, where are we? And he said, these are our, this, these are our family plots. Oh, we're standing on this perfectly flat, beautiful green space. And and I wasn't really thinking about the impact of these things as a 10-year-old, you know. And, and in fact, we got to laughing so hard about it that we thought it'd be fun to take a picture of the moment for my mother. So dad had me lie down in the grass and cross my arms over my chest, staring wow. up at the sky. And he took a picture of me in my future gravesite. <laughs> oh, wow. So we'll let that sink <laughs> in. <laughs> wow. You were doing a dry run through. <laughs> That's exactly right. So, uh, you know, years pass. My college career started at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. I did two years there and I declared my major early uh, in psychology. So I was immature and I was taking classes way over my head and I was under Mm. a lot of stress and I started having the dreams. I would be on my back in the grass looking up at the sky and there's my dad taking that one picture of me. And then I would start to sink into the soil, <laughs> into the earth, and I would land in a box, buried alive. Oh, wow. Oh, how often did you have these dreams? Oh, it, well, it was for easy for a year. It was oh. my freshman year was OK. Sophomore year was a hot mess, hot <laughs> mess of uh, so little sleep, waking up in cold sweats. And it is with that that I introduce you to taphophobia, the irrational fear of being buried alive. Wow. Good one. You, you think, of course, it's irrational. And then you start reading how it's described. And so I want to read <laughs> this passage. And this is from, you know, Wikipedia, Wikipedia, source of all knowledge. And sure. Uh, but but just listen, listen to the language. Premature burial can lead to death through the following asphyxiation, dehydration, starvation or in cold climates, hypothermia. A person trapped with fresh air to breathe can last a considerable time, and burial has been used as a very cruel method of execution, as in cases of Vestal Virgins who violated the oath of celibacy, lasting sufficiently long for the victim to comprehend and imagine every stage of what is happening, being trapped in total darkness with very limited or no movement, and to experience great psychological and physical torment, including extreme panic. Right. So, uh, of course, I am having these dreams and I'm waking up in the cold sweats and I'm and and it's not like I'm afraid of dying. That's not the thing. This is a very special sort of uh, a place on the Venn diagram between the sort of generalized fear of death, which is I, I did not know this called thanatophobia and claustrophobia. And, you know, the the act of being alive at the time, right, and being trapped and imprisoned and, uh, and again, loss of control. And so we talked about loss of control in in your bit in the front. I think that is a central theme in a lot of the anxieties I've experienced over the years, that it is there is no way to reclaim control when you just can't when you can't scream, when you can't yell where nobody's going to hear you. And and so uh, in the case of being buried alive, as much as I, I like to think, okay, of course, it's irrational. 
It turns out that we have a fear that is based in some legitimate history. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, American funeral director T.M. Montgomery wrote in 1896 that at the time he estimated nearly 2% of those exhumed were no doubt victims of suspended animation. Suspended animation. Thanks for dressing it up. So smart <laughs> back then. But but really, you know, it was this sort of false coma. Like they were in a coma. Right. They didn't know what coma was. And so right. they put them in a box, right? And, sure. And uh, of course, you know, these are people who have not been properly pronounced dead. They were buried and then exhumed to discover the bodies had demonstrated signs of life in the casket. And most of these signs, oh. I, I don't want you to worry, because most of these signs, they're part of the natural process of decomposition, right? You know that hair and nails continue to grow after death, that sort of thing. Right. Uh, but but the fear of taphophobia was to the point that in 1799, George Washington actually made his attendants promise not to bury him for two days after his death, just to make sure. It was that much of a real. Oh, it God. was way back then. So I, I think, uh, you know, maybe it's irrational. It's irrational. We could check this one off the list. This is just a series of dreams. I don't have to worry about this now. Right. Right. Unless you're Rosangela Almeida dos Santos, a 37-year-old woman pronounced dead and buried on January 28th of this year, Tom. This year? That's this year. <laughs> it's like a month ago as we record this. She was exhumed oh. after 11 days only to find out that she had cuts all over her and the nails in the coffin had been loosened no. and bloodied under her fingernails. I... What? Oh, my God. Why was she exhumed? Why do we know this? The mother tells this story that, in fact, the uh, you know, kids had reported they heard screams from in the ground, that uh, people walking by heard screams. And, uh, you know, they already knew that the hospital had some shady issues going on, had a reputation for making mistakes. There, there are these stories around here about why they decided to exhume the body. Uh, in fact, it was it was just members of, of the community who went out there illegally and opened up the casket. They dug up the, the casket on what they now say are potentially rumors that they just they, that they in fact have been accused of grave robbing and violating the the uh, the sanctity of the grave that it that maybe the mother's you know just experiencing the the deep remorse that comes from losing a child there is let's say it is questionable uh, the story is questionable but the brazilian news is all over this woman trying to fight her way out of the coffin. And the one Ugh. thing they have not come back, uh, uh, come back and, and uh, you know, countered is uh, the appearance of her trying to get out of the coffin. You know, there are still the scrapes and scratches and the bruises on her back where apparently she had turned over and tried to use her back to force the, the earth up above the lid of the coffin. And, and uh, yeah. uh. so just when I think I'm OK, Tom, these are just dreams. Right. Then I re read about poor Rosangela Alameda de San. Santos, uh, and, and, and I think kicked in the tail strike. You really do. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is one of those funny things talking about these things. This is not something I live with every day. I will tell you, though, that I have flashes of these dreams when modern media decides that they want to plaster it all over my nightmares. The fantastic sure. ep two-parter episode of CSI uh, called Grave Danger is one of my most 
horrifying experiences of watching television is the beloved Nick Stokes is buried alive in a fancy glass coffin where he can see the dirt around him and he is and they start pushing, you know, ants. Into I saw the that hole. one. Oh, it was terrible. I had to stop watching because yeah. of something that well, you might remember. But do you remember who wrote and directed that or at least wrote it? You did. Quentin Tarantino. That checks out. Yeah. He wrote both of those. I don't remember if he directed it. It was just horrifying. No, that was horrifying. And it involved little things that live under the earth. I had to stop. I didn't yeah. wasn't able to actually finish it. He was saved. Let me just say this. He was saved because of the dedication of his friends uh, in, and amazing computers. He was able to live in this completely fictional universe of CSI. Right. But those sorts of stories are triggering for me, right? I Then I go into, and I actually, I go to sleep and I have to think, okay, I need to actively think about, you know, pink elephants. I have to think about a symbol mm. that is total, totally distracting to me. Because you'll start spinning will, on it and spinning on it? I will start spinning on it. I will start spinning on it. I can't close my eyes. Uh, it, I have that, you know, that that sort of hyperventilation uh, experience and I have, to, I have to step back from it. I have to find a way to step back from it. So it's, it can really get that strong. Wow. It really can. It really can. Those are, it's a horrible thing that it's that compression and i also have problems you know i think as a result i do maybe not as a result but you know i don't like these stories because of i I have a problem with you know claustrophobia i imagine myself in a submarine for example there was a time Mm. when i thought hey i'd be a great submariner uh i'd love to be (laughs) full on red october you know and and uh Mm -hmm. then then i actually got on a submarine uh uh, you know a tour of a (laughs) submarine and thought this was a horrible mistake in every way uh a giant floating coffin yes (laughs) and it sinks tell me more yeah Yeah, it's it it puts me in that in that dark space. Uh, And so as it turns out, I'm in exactly the right place. And uh, I don't need I need to be above ground and breathing fresh air. And I am not going to be buried in Oklahoma. (laughs) (laughs) There's this piece to it. You know, it was such a rational thing to be afraid of years ago that, uh, you know, when you have these stories of people who are, you know, in a, in a coma and buried prematurely, uh, and those things happen enough times, uh, the wealthy folk come around and they invent ways or request ways that are to be invented that can somehow save them from being buried alive. Yeah. In these cases, they're safety coffins, right? That they are these special devices invented to ensure that if you were buried buried prematurely, uh, that you would have a way to notify those above ground. These might include coffins with bell attachments and strings. They include, uh, and and that is, in fact, the origin of the term, saved by the bell. When a a bell rings above a coffin, um, that'll trigger someone inside ringing it? Someone inside ringing the bell. (laughs) Uh, They include uh, moving all of the the uh, fixtures to the coffin, right? The switches and latches that allow you to open it, uh, moving all of those fixtures inside the coffins so that you can actually, uh, I don't know how, I've always found this to be uh, of dubious utility. Uh, How would you actually, even if you could open the lid from the inside, how would you possibly be able to lift it up and get through the dirt? That has always seemed like a, a ridiculous premise to me. And, and equally terrifying. We should replace the dirt with packing peanuts. I have a whole plan <laughs> for all of this. It's foolproof. <laughs> it's all the Amazon bubbles. The Amazon bubbles yeah, that come in your all boxes. That. It's just yeah. all that so stuff. They give you they give you an inside doorknob and then a little and pin. A and you just pop, 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 <laughs> pop your way out. 
<laughs> and that's yeah. it's actually saved by the pop is the new term. And all you hear <laughs> from underground is pop, 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 pop. Yep. Yep. We got it. We locked this one in. Good talk. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash scent of a podcast. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from, and you can use it on the Audible app for your phone, for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, other generic MP3 player, whatever it is. The audiobook for you is there, audibletrial.com slash scent of a podcast. And to celebrate, Tommy, you have picked a book for people to get started. I have, yes, uh, involving my nonsense about fear of silence. I would like to suggest Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World that Can't Stop Talking, written by Susan Kane. This came out in 2013 and was an enormous hit. It's kind of a Malcolm Gladwell-like book about how some of the greatest people in history have been introverts. They include Rosa Parks, Chopin... Dr. Seuss, Dr. Steve Wozniak. Don't know why I said doctor. I do not believe he got the MD. (laughs) Either way, uh, it's a good way to learn about the importance of silence and to treasure the inner introvert in you. The irony of this book is it will actually make you great at parties. (laughs) Weird, right? So weird. For you, the listeners of What's That Smell? Audible is offering a free audiobook download with your 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. So search for Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World that can't stop talking or any other book you think you might be interested in just start at audibletrial.com slash scent of a podcast and uh, you will tell audible that you heard about it from us so I better use my legs today's tune you've been listening to is music by asaf ayalon and you can find that uh, in itunes or anywhere finer music is served link in the show notes Find the show at rashpixel.fm, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served. We don't pay to advertise this show, so we appreciate you sharing with others you think would be interested. Coming up next week, some of those people are on the record uh, as saying that they exhibit this same set of conditions. Maya Angelou and Tom Hanks and Neil Gaiman. Really? I feel like I'm in a damaged club, but it's uh, it's a nice club all <laughs> But it's the a same. good club to be it's a part a of. It's a good club yeah. to be in. Yeah, I'm all alone, but I'm in good company. I'm sorry. We're we're doing this this week. <laughs> and let's tear the band-aid off, Pete. It is not about number 1. The world can hear me do number 1. <laughs> I will pee in front of the pope. <laughs> Until then, I'm Tommy Metz the 3rd and I'm Pete Wright. Thank you for downloading. We'll be back next week on What's That Smell? 